We come now to the next sermon in our series in the book of James. Our preaching passage this morning is going to be from James chapter 4, starting in verse 13, going to chapter 5, verse 12. Hear now God's word, starting in verse 13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes, and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. This is God's word. Amen. You may be seated. James, the brother of the Lord Jesus, is uh, writing to Christians who have been dispersed. They're part of the diaspora, the group of Jewish Christians who have been spread throughout uh, the world at the time. And because they've been separated from each other, because uh, they've had to deal with isolation uh, away from home, um, there are various challenges that they're facing. And James is addressing those challenges. And as we've been going through this book together as a church, We've seen how relevant uh, those issues are, as many of us, of course, throughout the whole world, have faced isolation, separation, um, social distancing, and there are challenges that come with that spiritually, physically, practically, economically, and James is uh, teaching how we should respond to those challenges. And he began by telling us to um, count it all joy. Uh, We should look at the end purpose of God throughout it all and therefore rejoice. And then he told us to um, watch out for 
pretending. It's so easy, you know, we know we should count it all joy, so easy to not do so, and therefore um, begin to put on a good face, but not really um, be doing what we know we need to do. And so he taught us to let God's word sink deep into our heart, so we're not only hearers of the word, but also doers of the word. And then he addressed what he called partiality. So when people are physically distanced, it's easy for them to become emotionally distant, separated, um, uh, divided in what they think as well as divided physically, socially. And the particular partiality, as he called it, that they were facing was economic, a division between the rich and the poor. And he uh, taught us how we should love our neighbor, our poor neighbor, our rich neighbor, love our neighbor and do practical um, actions to take care of those who are disadvantaged or poor, especially in times like these. And then he he stepped back and uh, imagined that someone would have an objection. Hold on, aren't we justified by faith alone? Why are you calling us to do all these things? And so he, he cast a theological worldview to understand that, yeah, we're justified by faith alone if we understand what that phrase means, but that doesn't mean we're justified by the faith that remains alone. And indeed, our works are evidence of the genuineness of our faith. And he used the word justification in a different way for Paul. They justify our faith in the sense that they evidence that we have real faith, the faith which alone saves us. And then last week, we looked at the tongue, how important it is that we don't let words become daggers to attack each other, but instead be transformed from the inside to speak what is true in love. But now we come in some ways to the most, perhaps the most relevant, certainly another relevant matter, and that is about the future. In times like these that they were going through and that many of us throughout the world are going through too, the future seems so uncertain constantly changing how then shall we live and James is going to tell us and he has three areas that he wants to address the first is about plans planning plans and this is from verse 13 to verse 17 of chapter 4 so he begins come now you who say He's still talking about what is said, the the words, the tongue. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. And so he's uh, talking about making plans, and in particular, plans related to business. Uh, Come, you who say, today or tomorrow, we'll go in such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. He's thinking about the market, shares, bonds, selling and buying. Okay, so this is a plan about the future, particularly related to making money. Yet, he says, verse 14, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. How true that is. We know that unless Jesus returns, tomorrow will happen. Uh, But we don't know what it will bring. 
I, I remember when, uh, at, at the, before the, the previous election, obviously we're in election season, I remember before the previous election, when, because I published a number of books, I'm aware of the publishing scene in Christian circles. I remember there was a whole set of books that were ready to go on the assumption that things would turn out a certain way that everyone was predicting. And when they didn't turn out that way, all those books were off the table. We don't know what tomorrow will bring. I remember right before COVID hit, all the plans that everyone had, and they all changed. We don't know what tomorrow will bring. It's, it's not a truth that social media will tell us, but it's a truth the Bible will tell us. You do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes, or, or literally it is. For you are a mist that appears for a little time. There's a, there's a play on words here. It, a mist that appears for a little time and then disappears. Again, how true that is. Michael Jackson, the king of pop, striding the whole globe, gone. Prince, the great musician, huge wealth and popularity, a mist that appears then disappears. Even our Christian heroes. Of course, if you love the Lord Jesus, you go to heaven, so your life continues. But still, this, this life is very short. John Stott, famous. Uncle John, throughout the world. Gone. Billy Graham was once asked, as he went on through life, what it was about life that had most surprised him. And his answer was, it's brevity. What is your life? You're a mist that appears, disappears. Well, you say, but hold on, we've got to make some kind of plans, haven't we? Well, verse 15, instead, you ought to say, again, talking about what is said, what is published, what is articulated, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Now, down through the years, and oftentimes people read this and say, isn't this just a little perfunctory? Isn't this just a little nominal, Lord willing? Uh, years, years ago, Christians used to use the little phrase DV, which is Latin for Deo Volonte, which means Lord willing all the time. Just like DV, Lord willing, we'll do this. But this isn't just a word. It's a word that expresses a truth. And when we publish our plans in business, we should say to ourselves, Lord willing. And when we publish our plans as a church, we have plans as a church, but they too are Lord willing. We don't know, only God knows. We plan, but we plan, Lord willing. But uh, these people he's addressing were not doing this. And so verse 16, as it is, you boast in your arrogance. 
all such boasting is evil. The, the, the phrase there, the, the boasting has a, has a sense of lifting up your head, like sticking out your chin. Yeah, I'm going to do this. No problem. And the arrogance word there has, has a sense of someone who travels around selling stuff that isn't going to make and isn't the real thing. It's fake. And they have to travel again because it is fake. They're, they're a quack. They're, they're a snake oil salesman. It's someone who says, yeah, I know the future. I know what's going to happen tomorrow. Trust me. No one knows the future. Only God. But they're boasting their arrogance, their snake oil sales approach to the future. Instead, verse 17, and this is one of these phrases that people who study James think is just kind of thrown in there and isn't connected, but actually it is connected. So verse 17, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. In other words, instead of the speculation about the future, look at what you've got to do right now, today. Don't let speculation about future possibilities be an excuse to avoid present responsibilities. If you know the right thing to do right now, do it. Don't think I've got a plan to do it tomorrow. You don't know what will happen tomorrow. So first, plans. All this is about the future, the future uncertainty, Lord willing plans. But then from uh, verses 1 through to verse 6, he addresses prosperity, riches. And whereas I, I think, and most commentators would agree with me, the previous part is talking about Christian business leaders. This part is addressing uh, the ungodly rich, uh, those who are not yet Christians. And any time you preach, any time a church gathers, there are always some people there who are not yet Christians. And we need to think about them too. And James is, as he writes this letter. So he says, come now, you rich, that is the ungodly rich. He's already, already addressed the possibility that you can be rich and a Christian, rich and godly. Abraham was a godly man and very wealthy. In chapter 1, James addressed the, the poor brother and the rich brother and gave different instructions to each. It's a hard thing to be rich and godly. But it's possible, Jesus says, it's harder for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's hard, but in God's grace it's possible. But here he's addressing the rich ungodly, those who are not yet Christians. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Again, he's looking at the future. This future is certain. Jesus is is returning, and the how is a is a uh, is, is 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 the phrase is onomatopoeia. It's a it's a word that sounds like what it is. It's a howl. It's a cry. It's a shout. It's a it's a loud weeping because Jesus is returning. He says, verse 2, your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. He's imagining that future. When everything that you have, you rich who are not following Jesus, every special piece of clothing is just rotted. And your riches have gone too. Your gold and silver have corroded. 
Don't get hung up there about whether gold and silver can really corrode or not. The point is that they've been spoiled somehow. And their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. I was on that last day when Jesus returns. The hoarding of money for your own selfish uses and the way that has in the end been spoiled will be evidence. And that evidence will be used at the judgment day when God separates the sheep from the goats and casts into eternal fire in hell those who do not follow Jesus. Hell is taught in the Bible, even though it's not always taught in pulpits, but it is here at College Church. You have laid up treasure in the last days. The last days in the Bible are the days all the way from when Jesus came the first time, rose again and sent his spirit. Now we're in the last days until Jesus returns. So in Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches that the spirit has come, fulfilling what Joel, the Old Testament prophet, said, in the last days I'll pour out my spirit. We're in the last days. James's authors were in the last days, the time between Jesus' first coming and his second coming is the last days. But these rich and ungodly have laid up treasure. Instead of investing their treasure in the kingdom to come, they've kept it for themselves. Verse 4, behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields. These, these are the rich landowners in the ancient Roman Empire. There were these extremely wealthy landowners, vast property, dominated the power scene. And they, of course, had laborers who mowed their fields, but they weren't paying them what they deserved keeping it back by fraud. But that's all crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters, those who look after their farms and property and land, have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Literally, the Lord Sabaoth, which is an Old Testament word and is another sign that James is probably writing to Jewish Christians using that kind of phrase that they would have been familiar with. He's writing to Jewish Christians and to Jews who are not yet Christians. The Lord Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of the army. God has a spiritual army. You you rich with all your resources, with all your laborers, with, with all your money, with all your army to protect you, the Lord has an army. And the cries of those that you have defrauded have reached his ears he's heard them even though you didn't you have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence it's all been just for you you fatten your hearts in a day of slaughter (laughs) james is imagining that these rich landowners are like cattle eating more and more and more and more and what they don't realize is that unless they repent, they're just like cattle that have been fattened for the day of slaughter. It's quite a picture, isn't it, when you next see someone who seems to be overly self-indulgent. We should have pity on such a person, for Jesus is returning. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. 
uh, whether literally or using legal means, if you're wealthy and, and unscrupulous and ungodly, you can use the law to attack other people. We read about it all the time. Jesus knows. The Lord of hosts knows. You've condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. That is not saying that the righteous person doesn't have legal remedy and can't defend themselves. Of course they can. Paul did that. Jesus defended himself throughout his life, not at the cross, because that was his design to go to the cross. There is a place for appropriate defense for the Christian. But this does not resist is, it has a sense of does not attack back. The righteous person knows that God is the judge. And they leave their cause with him ultimately. Now listen, brothers and sisters. It is so important that the Christian church speaks out against immorality of the powerful, elite, rich, dominating, destroying people throughout the world. Because if we do not, well, other movements will. And James did. Come now, you rich, ungodly. Weep and howl. For the cries of those who have been abused has reached the Lord of hosts. And of course, it's a call to repentance before it is too late. So it's all about the future. There's an uncertain future, but there's a definite certain future that Jesus will return. And he's talked about plans. Say, Lord willing, prosperity. Don't hoard don't covet. Be generous with what we have, Christians. But then there's a final piece that is positive. Both those are negative. Don't plan without saying, Lord willing. Don't just heap up riches for yourself. Give generously to others and to the poor. But now there's a positive command from verse 7 to verse 12. And it's all about patience. So we have plans, prosperity, now patience. Verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers. Brothers and sisters. Again, we, we've seen that throughout James. He, it, in, it includes brethren, as the King James Version used to put it. Brothers and sisters, family of God. Be patient, therefore, until the coming of the Lord. Again, it's about the future. In this future uncertainty, there is a future that is certain. Be patient, Therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Okay, James, well, that's easy enough to say. How, how can I do it? So he gives us an illustration. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. And one of the challenges for us, of course, is we, we don't... Um, we're not very familiar with farm life around here. Uh, we, of course, are suburban or urban. And the way we live, you, everything's on demand. If you want food, you go to the grocery store and you get it. You, you don't even have to go to the grocery store these days. You can just click a button. You can turn up later that same day. There you are. You've got the whole set of apples and oranges and corn and Oatmeal, it's just there immediately. But that's, that's not really how it works, is it? The apple wasn't grown that day. <laughs> and so James is saying, think about the farmer. 
sows the seed, has to wait. You can't see it grow for a long time. He doesn't dig it up again to see whether it's growing underneath the ground. And then when it's above the ground, that's slow. And you have to wait for the early rains and the latter rains until the harvest finally comes. Think of the farmer. The Christian life is much more agrarian than industrial. It's organic. It's like being a farmer. Wait. You also, he says, uh, verse 8, be patient. Establish your hearts. And when he says establish, what does that mean, establish your hearts? The, the image is of give stability, um, structural foundation to your thinking. The hearts in the Bible is not just your feeling, it's also your thinking. Your thinking and your feeling, make those stable so you're not constantly, oh, I can't be patient. I don't know what's going to happen. I'm so scared. I'm so worried. No, establish your hearts so you're stable. How? For the coming of the Lord is at hand. Again, it's about the future. How do you establish your hearts? You think about the return of Jesus. If you want to know why, so much of Christianity these days, so much of the world these days is constantly running over the place, scared, so lacking in stability. You know why? We're not focusing on the coming of the Lord. If you want stability in your life, strength, spend time every day thinking about the return of Jesus. That will give ballast and commitment to your life. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Verse 9, don't grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. It's so easy to grumble, isn't it? Oh, I don't like that. I, I don't like that way that Bible study was done. I don't like that, that song. I, 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 don't like, uh, I don't like that decor. I, oh, I wish she hadn't said that. And Grumble, 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 grumble. How do you stop it? The judge is standing at the door. When you're behind the doors grumbling, he hears. That would be a good slogan to put on a t-shirt. <laughs> the judge is standing at the door. So he's given an illustration of the farmer, but now he is an example. And it's uh, from the Bible, verse 10. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. So think of the prophets. Think of Isaiah. Think of Jeremiah. Think of Amos. Those who were patient. They were greatly blessed by God. They were, they were God's prophets. And yet they had to be patient. Well, we certainly will too. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job. Job, the famous story of Job with his suffering. And yet at the end, how God brought out a, a good Result at the end, you've seen the purpose of the Lord or literally the end result of, of the Lord. Again, it's about the future, how God has an end purpose that is good. Focus on that. That will make you patient. You've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. He's got a good end in mind. And then again, verse 12, one of these 
phrases that seems like James just sort of thrown in there as a proverbial phrase. It isn't connected to what he's just been talking about, but it, it is. Let me show you how. So verse 12, but above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes, your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Under condemnation or, he, again, it's, it's not condemnation in the sense that Paul uses that when he says in chapter 12, therefore there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. This is about the judge who's coming, that Jesus is returning and to whom we'll have to give an account. Again, it's about the future and Jesus' return. There's an uncertain future. You don't know what tomorrow will bring. And there's a certain future. It's part of the gospel. Jesus came, he died, he rose again, and He's coming back. And therefore, don't swear. You know, when we get frustrated and impatient, it's so easy for us to begin to swear, to curse. There's swearing everywhere these days. Not among us. Why? We establish our hearts and we let our yes be yes and our no be no. Because Jesus is coming back. It's, it's a powerful word these days, I think. This call to patience. Planning as the Lord wills. Using what God's given us, our, our wealth, our resources for his, his purpose. Not hoarding it because of the uncertain future. And being patient because there is a certain future about Jesus returning. It's a powerful word. The the prophets in the Old Testament, they, they teach us about that, that, that example, that, that they were looking forward to when Jesus was going to come. They didn't know what we knew. We know, no, no, now no, because we live on the other side of the cross, and yet they were patient, trusting. And we too, who haven't yet seen Jesus return, can take courage from the patience of Job and Isaiah and Amos. And Jeremiah. But there's also an example here that is, that, that, um, not, not only an example here, there's also an illustration that uh, James uses, and the illustration of a farmer. I didn't grow up on a farm, I grew up in suburbia. My mother uh, grew up on a farm. She tells me, she remembers when they were so poor that they didn't have money to buy shoes. But I didn't grow up on a farm. I did work on a farm once when I was 18. I went to work on a small farm run by a Roman Catholic charity. Wonderful place, taking care of the orphan. And my job was to run camps for orphan children who came to that farm. And in between those week-long camps, I was a laborer um, helping out with whatever I needed to do on the farm. I remember one time, I think they had no idea what to do with me. I, uh, and there wasn't much real work to be done, so there was a big field, and there were piglets in the field, about 20 of them. And they came to me and said, Josh, go and catch those piglets, which was a good day's work, I can tell you. Those things move fast. And what do you do with the 18-year-old young man 
Give them 20 piglets to chase. That will keep them happy for a day. I also remember there was an older man who lived in a shack on the farm. He was a laborer. He didn't say much. The farm, um, when the orphans came, would feed the orphans, uh, obviously, food, nice food. And every now and then, they were given what they called chicken. But actually, there were rabbits on the farm. So it wasn't really chicken. It was really rabbit. But the orphans, of course, were not told. That older man, I remember going into the rabbit warren with him, the rabbit, where the rabbits were kept, and him teaching me how to break their necks humanely. Not something I was taught at Cambridge, I can tell you. I wondered since what he was doing on that farm, why he was there, where his family was. Now I have a good guess. He was probably of that generation that fought in the Second World War and had what we would now call PTSD. And the charity had looked after him and given him a place to live and work. Oh, there's so much brokenness and sadness. Jesus is coming back. And for those who will be patient, oh, how sweet will be the fruit. Let's pray together. Our Lord God, we pray that you would help us to be patient. Yes, Lord, we need to plan but to plan trusting in your will and saying as the Lord wills, as you will. And Lord, we we pray that you'd help us to live with the real future in mind, the certain future in mind, your return. And so to have established hearts strong and stable and patient. And we pray, Lord, for those who are wealthy and rich and do not know you. Oh, Lord God, grant them repentance unto life. And we pray, Lord, you'd help us to use our prosperity for your glory and the good of the hurting and disadvantaged, the spiritually hurting as well as physically. Oh, for all this, Lord, we ask for your help. Establish our hearts. Give us patience. In the name of Jesus, amen.